my mantra really became at the end of the day, if you send it to me less than a week before it's due, you need to automatically have an extension already set in place. Because if you send it to me and tell me I've got a day or two to review it, my, my response will simply be, go get an extension, it's not happening. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I am your host, Megan Henry, and this week I'm joined by Wade Vandiver. And Wade has had such a long and interesting career. Um, you know, he he went to law school after working for a few years, you know, was a practicing attorney, then went in-house and now has opened up his own uh, shop that he's doing mediations and consulting with uh, carriers and attorneys and um, about, you know, handling corporate depositions and things like that. So he's here to talk about not only his career, but, you know, really dig into the do's and don'ts of preparing for and conducting corporate dep- depositions, which, you know, for all of us litigators know it can make or break a case. So with that said, let me bring him in. Good morning, Wade. Thank you for joining me this week on The Defense Never Rest. How are you today? I'm great, Megan. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm so happy to have you on. And you and I had talked about this in our like pre, um, pre-podcast chat about your background, but I want to bring it up now because I, it was the first thing I noticed. And I was like, is that real or is that a virtual background? So, so why don't you tell us about where your background is? So actually my background does, is at Adair Manor in Ireland. Um, and it's looking out toward the golf course. And it's one of uh, the favorite places that my wife and I like to travel when we're able to travel, which hopefully we will be able to do one day again soon. Yeah. So, and so you've visited there before. We have, we have been there a couple of times. It's, um, it's one of the most beautiful places. It's in Ireland and uh, we kind of feel at home there and have really gotten to know some of the people there. So we've stayed in touch. So it's a really great place to go back. Yeah. I've, I've only been to Ireland once um, and it was such a great experience so <laughs> it's really nice the, it, it really is made by the people the people are really amazing so that's really one of the things that makes it so special for us yeah well I hope that you get to to travel back soon I mean those things it's looking more optimistic these days so <laughs> let's hope so hopefully we can all get to travel again very soon I hope yes um, I know for myself I have a a upcoming trip to, to Florida, which is not the same as Ireland, but I am excited about the beach and the sun nonetheless. So <laughs> it'll do. Well, hopefully you'll get to make it. There's some great places in Florida too. Yeah. We usually go to Siesta Key. My mom, my mom has a place there and it's my, one of my favorite places to visit. So it's wonderful. <laughs> um, so you know, I, you and I talked a few weeks ago, um, and I'm really excited to have you on because not only do you have just a, you know, you're a, you're a lawyer, you have history and claims, but you've also now, you know, opened up your own shop. And, um, so I have a lot to talk to you about from your own career and your career trajectory and what you've done of your career. But also we talked a lot about, um, you know, kind of a hot topic in prepping corporate witnesses for depositions and, you know, what could go well and what could go horribly wrong in relation to that. But before we dig into that, you know, let's just get into your career because it is, you know, you've had so many experiences and you've done so much over your career that I think our listeners would love to hear about some of your personal experiences. So, you know, we'll go, we'll go way back to you went to law school. So did you go to law school because your parents were attorneys or was it, you know, you were in college and you're like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do next. So this seems like a good career. Cause I think that's how a lot of us ended up here too. <laughs> yeah. So it's an, it's an interesting trajectory, quite frankly. So I always wanted to be alone ever since I was a little kid. That was always my passion. That's always what I wanted to do. I, I was the first one in my family to actually graduate college. Uh, and I'll never forget. My dad took me to the Texas tech law school and we met with the Dean when I was in high school to find out what I needed to do in order to get into law school at some point. And the dean at the time told me they accepted 1,200 students every year. And I'm sorry, they had 1,200 applicants and only accepted 200. So he said, go get a degree in something that you can make a career at because the, the chances are very low. 
And so ultimately, what did I do? I went to, to tech and I majored in political science. <laughs> so, you know, that, that, that worked out well, right? And then when I when I got out of law school, I really didn't, I mean, got out of college. I didn't have the means to go to law school at the time because I was supporting myself in college. And you couldn't work and go to law school your first year or two at the same time. And so that wasn't an option for me. So I went into the workforce for a number of years and I worked in banking, I worked in healthcare, I worked in paper and recycling industry. And then one day finally told my wife out of the blue, hey, I'm gonna go to law school. How'd she so take that? that? Kind of a <laughs> How'd she take the news? Was she like, but I mean, I'm sure she was supportive in her heart of hearts, but at the time she, you probably, we're coming, you had a stable income. You're like, well, now I'm going to just pay a lot of money and not work for a while. <laughs> right. I, th- I think it took her off guard because she was on a business trip and she just came home. But she was, as you said, very supportive. She knew that was something that I had always wanted to do. So she was awesome. And, you know, She supported me while I spent all my time in law school. Um, she'll, she says today, um, she'll tell all of our friends that, um, you know, Half of that belongs to her because of everything she had to go through and put up with, you know, as the law school student at home. But uh, yeah, it worked out well. I went to school at night. I worked full time during the day because I went to South Texas College of Law Houston and they had a night program. So that worked out. And I did that for the first, I think, year. Uh, and then I left my full time job and decided it was time to go get a job in the legal field so I could get the experience. Now, did you find, and I speak a little bit from experience because I, I, I took, I didn't intend to go to law school and then I worked after I graduated college and I decided that was a, a good path for me, but I feel like I approached the experience with a little more seriousness than some right. of my classmates. Did you have a similar experience? Absolutely. You know, it was interesting because going to school at night, um, the, most of the uh, peers that I was in class with were older you know, second career, third career um, law students. And so we had a different approach, as you said, we took it more seriously, we were more focused, um, as opposed to maybe some of the students that we interacted with who had come fresh out of college. Plus we had life experience to draw on, which I think gave us a leg up and and made it a better experience overall for us, um, just because we had had that life experience and we'd worked for a while. Yeah, and, I, I, and I'm, I'm sure that certainly served you well when you were trying to get experience in in the legal field because you weren't coming out green from college, maybe having, you know, the types of jobs that you have in college, which, can, you know, don't get me wrong, can be great, but it's not the same type of experience of having a, a career type job. So I'm sure you're, when your resume was, you know, came across people's desks, you probably got a little more consideration than maybe some of your other classmates. I would like to think that's true. I mean, I do think there's a lot to be said for having already worked uh, in you know, what we used to call the real world at the time, right? <laughs> Where you you have the ability to understand a bit some you know basic business concepts, relationships, how to build those, networking, uh, and just working with other people, you know, in a in a professional field. And and I do think that that people valued that. I've, I've heard people say that, and I do think there's a lot of value in that. Uh, and I do think sometimes, you know, that there, you do get the leg up that others may not have who've just come straight out of school. Yeah. And, that, and that's not to discount. You probably did amazing in law school. So you probably had the, the grades and all, all the accolades to back it up. But I think I think nothing competes with work experience, especially I think in any industry. But I think in the legal industry, like when you have, you know, experience in an office type setting and a more a more serious career type setting I think it just it helps you transition into that environment a little bit easier I think that's true because I think once you're in that work environment specifically you know in the legal setting I mean it, it I think we all know it's, it can be very high pressure high stress environment and having an experience of already being in that type of setting probably gives you you know, just a little bit more to work with as opposed to someone who may be coming fresh out of college, straight out of law school, and then trying to learn what that environment's like and how to navigate, you know, some of the pitfalls and challenges that you face. Yeah. So did, so when you left or when you graduated law school, did you go work, was you working in litigation at that time? I did. So I clerked in law school for 
um, two different law firms, which were litigation firms, uh, and then ultimately went to work at a law school at one of those firms that I clerked with, which was a lit litigation boutique where we did a lot of uh, insurance defense and coverage work uh, and bad faith work for you know, carriers of all sizes, from the big guys down to some, some you know, pretty small ones. So in, during that time, um, I, I'm like looking at, at the timeline of when you worked there, and that was what I recall, is a, that's around the time I graduated law school in 2007. And I personally didn't intend to go in litigation, um, but I ended up in litigation because the econ economy fell to shit and litigation was where, where the jobs were. Um, so, you know, do you remember that, like, I distinctly remember it was just like everyone else was getting either laid off, their salaries were getting cut and litigation was hiring like gangbusters. <laughs> like it was this, it was so busy. Um, do you recall, do you recall that experience at that time? I do. I do at that time. And at, you know, at that time I had, you know, I was already working in litigation. Um, but I know that, you know, in my experience, I was in the Houston area at the time and worked downtown and there were a lot of firms and people that I knew that, you know, a lot of different transactional type lawyers and things were having a hard time finding positions. You know, there were a challenge in some of the specific areas, uh, you know, and even in litigation to a great extent, um, there were some issues, right? But it, it's somewhat cyclical. Litigation can be cyclical depending on where you're at in the environment with regard to what's happening. Because I know uh, when I first started at the time, then Texas went through tort reform because that's where I practiced. And so there were, there were a lot of issues around litigation and specifically, you know, medical malpractice cases at the time and whether or not there was going to be an option. But as there always is, there's always something that, you know, if, if you're on the, the P side of the equation, you can always find something uh, that gives you an option or an opportunity, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I felt, you know, when I came out, I, I, I had this thought that I, you know, I wanted to be a transactional lawyer and, but I didn't have any basis to why I thought that I just thought that's what I wanted to do. And in retrospect, I look back and I was like, I'm so happy that I didn't end up that route. Cause I think I would have been bored. I think uh, litigation is anything but boring. <laughs> um, and that's not to say, I'm sure those transactional lawyers have a wonderful time and <laughs> their work is very exciting to them, but I think what I, what I fell into made the most sense for me. And I think that speaks a lot of times you just fall into things and you don't realize how it happens while it's happening. And then looking back, you're like, oh, this, this all made sense in the grand scheme. Well, that's, you know, that's, a, that's kind of a thing, I guess, the insurance coverage attorneys say all the time, right? It's you, you yeah. don't go looking for it, it finds you usually. And that's usually kind of how it works. You just kind of happen into it. Yeah. So you know, you're in, you know, law firm life for a number of years, and then you eventually move over to the carrier side, which to many of us is like, you, you've reached the pinnacle, you've gone from billing your hours <laughs> to not no longer having to bill your hours and working for a carrier. So, you know, how, it, talk to me about how that that transition worked. Was it a client that, you know, you worked closely with that, you know, kind of were like, hey, we really want you to come over and come over and work for us. How did it work for you? Yeah, so it was, it was interesting. So it ultimately was a care that I'd done work for and some of the people, that's um, not exactly how the transition worked, but um, they were looking, they were creating a new role in-house uh, to manage the extra contractual issues that they had because they didn't have uh, that aggregated or consolidated into one area as a lot of carriers do. It was being managed, you know, kind of spread out within the claims organization, but um, they wanted to bring everything together under one umbrella within the legal department so that they could really understand the exposure and then manage that exposure, right, to better outcomes. And so I was contacted, I think it's one of probably several people that they talked to, and ultimately, um, you know, it ended up being a good fit. And so, you know, as you do when you're working for carriers, oftentimes, you know, um, kind of confused or unsure about why carriers make decisions that they make. Um, it was an opportunity, as I call it, to peek behind the curtain a little bit, to go in-house and, and get a better understanding of that business and how it worked and what was important and, you know, the decision-making process. So 
um, it was it's it was a very good experience overall, and I'm glad that I, I made that move. So, what, if you can recall now, thinking back, like what was one of the things that you were surprised to learn about that something that you maybe not have totally had a grasp or understanding of when you were on the firm side, then when you came over to the carrier side, you're like, oh, I get that. Like this is why. <laughs> I, I think a lot of it just had to do with the overall philosophy of of and the approach that that carriers take towards certain situations, and so it's. It's hard to pinpoint just one specifically because there are so many things happening on the carrier side at one time that as just a lawyer outside, whether you're defense or coverage, I mean, a lot of times you just don't understand the broader landscape of what that looks like for a carrier. So anytime a carrier is making decisions, the ripple effects are incredible, quite frankly. And so that's something that I learned very quickly uh, that I didn't know before and then it was, you know, okay, how do we work? How do I work with that? How do I manage that while I'm managing, you know, my workload, um, which initially was extra contractual claims that ballooned into quite more than that. But um, I think that was the biggest issue. It's just, it's so much bigger than what you see as an individual attorney working outside. Like, if, and if you could give us examples, so say, you know, you're on, you're the attorney working for a client and you send them, you know, your pre-mediation report and you say, blah, 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 you know, these, this is our pure exposure of, you know, X and we assess our, you know, settlement range as Y. So if on the carrier side, you get that, you know, email or letter or report and, you know, how, how does the ripple effect of that, that work on the carrier side? Cause I think a lot of us, we think we know how it works, <laughs> But I don't think we really do because we're not sitting in, we're not sitting in those chairs and we're not sitting standing in those shoes. I think one thing is that um, there are a lot of internal constituents when I say that. So usually, you know, if you're a defense counsel or a coverage counsel, you're working probably with an adjuster or maybe a supervisor in tandem. Uh, but there are a lot of people, there are a lot of other people sometimes that uh, may have an interest in what's happening with a claim, right? Depending on, you know, what the issues are, it could have broader implications for that book of business, you know, um, as to whether or not, you know, that's a novel issue, right? I mean, if, if I mean, you can take a look at COVID right now, right? I mean, there, there's COVID litigation all over the country. Thousands of cases have been filed over business interruption coverage, that's just one discrete component, right? There are a lot of other uh, issues for coverage for COVID, but if you look at just business income coverage or business interruption, you know, it has a broader implication to not only one carrier, but every carrier's book of business. So when you think about that, you know, there are a lot of people internally who have an interest in what that looks like. So when those reports come in, um, there may be a lot of people who are interested in what that report says and how thorough it is. And there are gonna be a lot of people then who are asking questions. So that could happen you know, on any unique issue or any type of exposure, right? That you might have as a carrier. So if you're drafting that report, most of the time you're focused on just the discrete issues in your case, right? Mm -hmm. Your facts, your situation, your client, but that all can impact anything else in any other case, ultimately, potentially, depending on what the outcome looks like, if it's unique or different enough, or if it's specific, say, uh, policy language or specific type of damage that's incurred. Uh, so sometimes that's just it. There are a lot more people that that may impact at the carrier than just the people you're talking to. Now, is there any advice you would give to, you know, to the handling attorney when, when they're, you know, firing off that report to, to the adjuster or the supervisor or the director, you know, to, to keep in mind with that, knowing that the, the greater effect is much larger than your particular case? I think it's really important to have a conversation with your contact at the carrier, carrier contact, to make sure you understand what it is they're looking for in a report, uh, what information do they need, what's important to them, um, and what's not important to them or what they may not want in a report mm -hmm. uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, so I think it, you just have to have those conversations and, and really kind of understand what their needs are and then make sure you meet their needs. And then 
you know, as I always used to tell attorneys, um, carriers are, they've hired outside counsel for a reason because they need legal advice. So make sure you provide the advice. <laughs> don't, don't send a report to a carrier and say, which, you know, is one of the things that you often see is here are your options, A, B, C, D, and then that's it. <laughs> you don't get the benefit, you know, and the, the attorney, unfortunately, hasn't gone far enough and taken that extra step and said, okay, well, your options may be A through D. We recommend that you follow option B, and here's why we recommend that. That's, I think, the completion that is missing sometimes, and, and that's really key. Yeah, and that... That's often the approach, you know, I personally like to take is like, here, I'm going to tell you all the things we can do. And this is what I think we can do and why. But if you want to talk about it more, I'm here to talk about it. But this is why I think this is uh, the, the best course. Right. And it leaves the the option open for them to disagree. I mean, the client can disagree with you and say, no, you know what? I like C better. And they might like C better. And if they want to do C, they can do C. Um, sure. But uh, I also think there there's something to be said about knowing your particular client though too, because some clients um, like to, they want to make the decision. They want you, I mean, you just have to know what they're looking for. And I think that goes with like, again, like what you said, know what they want. Cause there's some that like, no, no, I want to see the options and I'll, I'll tell you what I want you to do. And it just depends on the individual companies or carriers or whoever's philosophy and how they want claims handled. Yeah, communication is always key, right? In those relationships and understanding your client's philosophy, their approach, again, what's important to them, what they like to see. I mean, you really need to take the time, I think, at the outset to really have those conversations. And then that will kind of drive, you know, what what your communication looks like moving forward and what your reports look like and, and how you communicate. Uh, and then that leads to better outcomes for, for both sides. Yeah, yeah. I and this is a common theme, I think, on this podcast with a lot of guests is, you know, communicating with your clients because this is a relationship. This isn't, you know, you're supposed to be, you know, working together and together you you get to the path, you know, that you walk down the path and you get to the goal, but you have to communicate. And right. I mean, it's like, it's a marriage, you know, you have to communicate. Well, you know, it really is key because I, I will tell you, one of the, the most frustrating um, things that you can find on the carrier side is is attorneys who don't communicate well, right? That's one of the most uh, frustrating parts of working on the carrier side is if you're working with attorneys who don't communicate well, don't answer phone calls, don't respond to emails. If you know they're taking longer to get back to you, that's that can be very frustrating. I mean, I know we all know, right? That attorneys are extremely busy and there are a lot of demands on their time. But what I always remind attorneys is, you know, I don't know how many cases a single attorney has on their desk at one time. And yes, it's different because there are some different moving parts. However, think about how many files a claims adjuster has pending at any given time on their desk and what they're juggling, because it's going to be significantly more in volume mm -hmm. than what any attorney has. I can guarantee you that. And so communicating, you know, with the carrier is key for them being able to do their job and do what they need to do as well. I mean, it's a two-way street. So, you know, the carrier's got to communicate well too, but, you know, and looking at it from a carrier perspective, you know, that's really one of the, the biggest pieces of advice is, you know, make sure you're responsive to the carrier because they have a lot going on. Yeah. And, and I think also being, and this is from my side, but being responsive, but direct, like, you know, making your you know reports things that you know what you need is not buried in the report and there's a lot of ways you could do it you could I, there's people like it all different ways like bold highlight lists like whatever it may be but like don't bury the point in the middle of the text because they don't have a lot of time to read it and they get a million of reports every day yeah yeah uh, yeah we, we had a saying um that was be brief, be bright, and be done, right? And so, that, I mean, I think that's important. I mean, everybody's time is valuable, particularly when you're talking about, I mean, who wants to read a 20-page report, right, every time? Um, that's time-consuming. If you think that's just one file, and then however many files that you have as an adjuster, plus the time it takes to write it. So, you know, you know it's always it just hit the high points, make sure that you're clear and you're concise in what you're trying to communicate. Um, 
and then you you know that you follow your client's direction but make recommendations and then you know that'll lead to better outcomes i think and better use of people's time yeah yeah and i think just everyone needs to be cognizant of time i mean I, I, and on the attorney side like i don't know what it is with these 20 page reports it's like do you I, what are you trying to prove <laughs> Yeah, well, some people like to give you, I think, you know, they're, they're, they may be afraid of what to leave out, uh, oh, and, you know, so and what might be important to a carrier. And so I think, again, that's where you have to communicate, but, you know, you have to be cognizant of, of the time um, that, you know, you're, you're taking up from someone in-house. And, and that's true for depots, too. That's one of, you know, I've got several points about depots that, you know, involve time management and, and respecting yeah. time. So we're going to hop into that in, in just a minute, but bef before we do, I want, I want to just touch on, so, you know, you're with the carrier for, you know, you know, 11 years, and then you, you decide to break off on your own. Now, how, how was that decision process for, for you? Were, you know, how did you come to be to decide that you wanted to, you know, step away from, you know, working for, I, I guess, the man? <laughs> so to speak, and just hang your own shingle and do your own thing? Like, how did you come to that decision? So it's something that's been in the works for some time. Um, it wasn't something that um, I thought of, you know, just very abruptly. Um, so it's it's something that I've been talking about uh, with people and thinking about for a long time, which is, you know, utilizing my experience of being outside counsel, you know, doing coverage and bad faith work, and then also being in-house and managing, you know, coverage extra contractual claims for 11 years. Uh, and it just, it's something that I thought would be, you know, my next step in my career and that I was working toward. Uh, and so it just happened to work out uh, that this was a good, you know, this was the time that it was going to happen. So um, it just allowed me now to kind of now step outside and put together, you know, my own kind of shop where I can provide other people, you know, whether it's in-house uh, carriers or outside counsel or whomever, you know, maybe some help and some advice and some guidance along the way. Yeah. So, so that was my next question. So, who's your like goal audience and client? Like, who you're trying to serve? Well, a number of people because there are different a couple of different aspects to to what I'm doing now, which is. Uh, one is, you know, advising carriers to the extent they need help uh, with regard to claim handling uh, and good faith. I call it good faith claims handling um, and, you know, training, uh, offer training to the extent that a carrier, you know, wants uh, some training, someone to come in and kind of work with claims people and kind of talk about good faith claims handling from, you know, a larger perspective, but focus on specific areas and things that can be done to make that happen well. Uh, and then also uh, one of the other things that I'm doing is functioning as a claims handling expert, given, you know, the thousands and thousands of cases and claims that I've handled, you know, I can be an asset to either side of the equation to the extent that someone needs someone to look at a claim file and, and you know, give some opinions or make some recommendations about, you know, the claim handling. Uh, and then also... Uh, mediation, right? Um, you know, I have a unique perspective, I think that would be helpful to a lot of parties who have disputes related to insurance coverage or bad faith, you know, where I could hopefully bring uh, that to the table and help people resolve claims to the extent that's uh, something that can be done short of litigation. Well, and I think you have a fantastic background for mediation, just because you, because you were, you know, a practicing attorney, and you worked for, you know, a carrier. Like I, I think having that background just serves very well for the mediation process because um, you have a level of understanding of what goes on on the carrier side more so than some other mediators may have. Right, and that's my hope. I mean, I, I can bring, uh, you know, that balance to the equation, I think. I mean, that, that's hard to get a lot of times and you don't find it very often when you're looking or at least I know when we were looking and I've been looking for mediators or or experts. So, you know, that's, you know, what I think could be valuable to people. And so, you know, that's what I want to be able to do is bring that value to the table, you know, hopefully to help people resolve issues and disputes. Um, so 
you know, I want to, I don't, I don't want us to run out of time. So we have to segue over to the meat. Like <laughs> we, we spent all this time talking about you, which is wonderful. But, you know, when, when we talked a few weeks ago, you know, I asked you about your, you know, your pain points and a big pain point to you was corporate depositions and having your counsel, having preparing properly and preparing the, the clients and the witnesses properly for these depositions. So let's face it, like corporate dep- depositions can make or sink a case if they are, I mean, they, they can make your case go completely south. Um, and so they are, and they, you know, the testimony binds the corporation. So they are of utmost importance. So, and, and you had a lot to say about this and you felt pretty passionately about it, <laughs> but, you know, throughout your, your career and what you've seen as a practicing attorney, as well as, you know, on the carrier side, you know, what have you seen from, I guess, the attorney, the attorney side of where the, the downfall and their approach to these depositions? Right. So um, that's one of the things that I did for, for the care that I was with um, is I coordinated employee depositions because we identified early on when I moved in-house that, you know, that there wasn't a process for that and there needed to be because we had people testifying all over the place about all sorts of things and nobody really knew what was happening. So you know, we created this gatekeeper role that I undertook uh, where you know I managed all of those. And you know, having taken depositions and participated in depositions outside, I knew that perspective. But when you're in-house and, and you're thinking of it from your own witnesses' perspective, you know, there were some things that um, some surprised me, some concerned me. Um, and, and one of those was I think that there were many times where attorneys didn't give the deposition the importance or the significance that it needed to have. And I think it's really important to really think about the fact that regardless of who the deponent is or what the subject matter or the topics are gonna be, every deposition is important because it has the ability to be significant, not only in that one case, but in any other case, because issues that representatives, whether it's just an individual adjuster or a corporate representative for a carry might testify about, you know, that may impact any other litigation, right, that they may be involved in or could be involved in at some point in the future. So you really need to take the time to <clears throat> treat that process with the importance that it has. Um, in, in, in talking about, I guess, war stories, you know, I was always surprised because I was involved in all of the employee prep, right? So anytime we had an employee up to be deposed, I participated in the session because we wanted to make sure that, you know, there were certain processes that were followed with regard to how we were prepping the employee, but also that the employee was ultimately properly prepared, right? Because you want the employee to be prepared for the deposition process itself because it's so unique and it's so different from anything else that they do and it's not natural, mm-hmm. uh, and also the subject matter. But sitting in those sessions and having, you know, counsel tell the witness, the deponent that, you know, don't worry, you know, it's, it's going to be short, it's not going to take very long, this is going to be, you know, a quick depot, a couple of hours, I don't expect any surprises. Those type of comments, I think, are counterproductive, right? Because you have to put yourself in the deponent's seat because when you tell a deponent, look, you're only going to be here for a couple of hours, you know, it's not going to be that complicated, then you're, you're setting the bar in their mind about what to expect. And every time an attorney would say that, I would you know, kind of admonish the attorney and the deponent both and say, look, you really need to be prepared to be here all day, right? If you get out early, that's a bonus and it's a win, but be prepared to be here all day because otherwise your witness is you know looking at their clock right waiting for that two hour mark or three hour mark or whatever it is because they've probably planned other activities maybe later in the day or they're trying to catch a flight to get home or you know whatever it may be and then frustration can start to set in and that's when we all know depositions can go horribly wrong yes. right when people start to get tired or you know, they, they start to lose focus. So that was one of the big things that I think was really important uh, that I was surprised about and concerned about was just 
that type of approach to a deposition. Um, the other one is when an attorney, you know, we had this happen where the attorney will say, okay, well, I'll meet you an hour or two, an hour before the depot and we'll prep there. Mm-hmm. But in my mind, that's never an acceptable approach to a mediation because that, that I don't think that shows enough respect to your client and to your witness when you do that, right? It's just, and it's not really giving the importance that you need to give to the process. Yeah. So, and I agree. And I want to jump back there to your comment about um, preparing your, your witness for the amount of time. And, you know, sometimes I feel as though attorneys might do that to like make the process seem easier than it is. And kind of like, it's almost like a, to make the, the witness feel comfortable. And, you know, if they, I, and I think it's just, a, I think I see it as like a natural tendency, but don't worry, it won't be so bad, you know, but on the flip side, yeah, it does set them up to be like, well, when this is going on six hours, like she said it was going to be done, you know, two hours and they're asking me all these asinine questions and they, they get frustrated and their demeanor changes. And then a good, a good plaintiff's attorney is going to then peek through the holes there and take advantage of that. Yeah, and, and again, I think I think that's um, you know you're giving your deponent a false sense of, of yeah. what to expect. You're setting the expectations very low. Uh, when we all know, when you have a company witness in the chair, you know, as the defense or presenting attorney, you you have limited control over what questions are coming at that witness. So you know. A witness can get all sorts of questions, and sometimes you don't have the ability to control what those are, whether or not the witness answers necessarily. So it's something I think that, you know, we just need to keep in mind when you're deposing a corporate client like that is that, you know, look, we need to take the time to spend with this witness, right? So that the witness feels as comfortable as they can Mm -hmm. about, you know, what's happening. And once it's done, they were able to, you know, navigate that properly and present themselves properly. Because the last thing you, you want is to have an uh, a witness who's not properly prepared, who may not be able to understand how the process works, whose answers are not the best uh, because they didn't understand what the questions can look like and how they can be structured. And then you leave a deposition either having answers that you don't want on the record because the questions were unclear, so the answers are now unclear or they're incorrect. And then you have a witness who feels dejected right, and just utterly beat up and horrible and that they didn't do well. You really don't want that to be the end game, right, for a deposition. So take the time, right, set it up, make sure that you know what their philosophy is, what your client's approach is to deposition, who's in charge of them, you know, what their procedures are, and then plan, right, and then follow through with the plan because one of the worst things you can do is have a plan and then get sidetracked, mm-hmm. right? Or get busy and push things off or even worse, you know, flip it to somebody else in the firm without talking to the client about it first. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of a lot of carriers who have relationships with attorneys and usually that relationship with this, that attorney, sometimes a team, right? If you've done enough work with them, but you know, if, if you, you start kind of pushing things off on others and they have a, you know, you don't have a good process in place, things aren't going to go well on the carrier side. And, you know, they're going to make some decisions that you might not be happy with at the end of the day. Yeah. And I think like one of the challenges I've, I've experienced with, well, witness depositions across the board, but corporate designee depositions is the, the witness who doesn't want to be there and they may, they make it known that this process is really annoying. It's a waste of time. And, you know, trying to communicate and express to them the importance of their position when they don't really care. Um, I, I find, I, at least personally, I find that to be one of the bigger challenges because uh, it's kind of hard to break through. So what advice would you give or thoughts do you have on for the attorneys trying to, you know, I would guess win over the witness and be like, <laughs> like, right. listen, buddy, <laughs> like this is, you need to do this and you need to follow my direction. <laughs> yeah. I mean, generally, if you're working, you know, with say, if you're working with a carrier and you've got the claims people, they generally get it, right. They understand their role and 
you know, if they're going to be deposed. And I think a lot of time, you have a lot of jesters who've been deposed. You have a lot who haven't. Um, but at least they understand the concept and what that process is about. I think you run into more of what you're talking about a lot of times when you get into areas of the company who uh, may not be deponents often, right? Um, whether it's underwriters, right? Or somebody in, in product development or some of these other departments where, you know, it's not something they run up against. They're not familiar with the process at all. Um, you know, you're, you're taking time away from what they need to be doing on their end, right? Because they're not involved in claims. I think that's where you have to spend a little bit more time. And, and one of the, I think, best tools is to use the people that you know in-house to help familiarize those people and work with them to get them to the point to where they understand the importance, the need, the requirement to be deposed. They understand the importance of what the subject matter or the topic is and how that's important to the company. And once you can kind of get them to the point where they understand why it's important to their business and their part of the business, that helps a lot, right? Because once they have that clarity, I think then you get the buy-in, right? And, and that's important. So utilize your internal contacts to talk with those people and help kind of bring them along. And I think that that'll get you there faster. Yeah. And I think that's a good, really good advice to, you know, kind of working on. I've had, so, at least on, I, I've had so many instances in cases, I'm not on coverage side, but on, you know, general liability premises cases where I have a designee of like a, a construction company who just could not be bothered. <laughs> and, you know, it, it does prove its challenges, but then when, you know, when you kind of talk to other people there and they, they are like, look, you know, Bob, like you really, <laughs> you know, you got to just work, you got to work with her here. I know you don't want to, it's annoying on your time, but it's important for like our company. And, you know, if things go wrong for a company, Bob, you might not have a job. So <laughs> there, there are some clients that can be more difficult than others, right? Because they are busy or they don't understand why there's such a demand on their time or why this is something they have to do. Um, you know, explaining how it impacts the bottom line sometimes is a good motivating factor if you can do that right. You know, what what is the ultimate impact of this, you know, piece of litigation to their business and how is that going to impact them financially? Um, and, you know, maybe, you know, relationship-wise in, in their industry, you know, what it could do to them. Sometimes that can help. Sometimes you get, it's hard. Um, you know, it can be a challenge, but I think you just... Again, communication is the key to pretty much anything that we're talking about. So you really just have to communicate often and communicate well, and, you know, just work with people as much as you can to try to get their buy-in into yeah. the process. Now, let's talk about time, though, because, I mean, preparation for these are, are time-consuming. Yeah. And especially, and, it, and it, that couples with that witness who may, may not want to spend the time. And, you know, a lot of times with these corporate death depositions, like I take the approach, like we might do like a large prep session, you know, X amount of time in advance. And then we're going to do another prep session where we go, like we review the things we went through that larger prep session. And a lot of times you get, you get frustration or, you know, pushback on that. But, you know, I think the time is very important because you, you spend a lot of time preparing for these. Right. It, it really is. I mean, you, you think about the time commitment that outside counsel needs to put into the process, right? Which is, okay, once you know or you, you expect you're going to have a, a client witness deposition is, you know, planning how you're going to prepare for that. Are you going to have a series of sessions leading up to the deposition? Or are you going to have some where they're telephone, maybe some where they're, as we're doing, like a video conference, are there some where you're going to be in person, right? Where you've got documents and then how many documents and what documents have to be reviewed and how does that factor in? You know, all of those things need to be thought through because again, it's time consuming. And you need to think about making sure that you set aside enough time in order to properly prepare the witness, right? Because again, think about these corporate witnesses have a lot of things on their plate. This is not the only file. Have lots of files. A lot of adjusters, believe it or not, are good at recall, right? I mean, they really understand and they can recall at the, off the top of their head a lot of things about a lot of files, but sometimes it takes some time to actually sit down and 
look at something to remember or to review. So you have to think about being able to get them through that process so that they can properly testify. But at the same time, you have to think about the time on their side. And I think that's oftentimes not given enough consideration because they have a lot going on. So I think one of the things that we, you know, I always used to say to, you know, in-house folks was, you know, if you're going to get deposed, that's a week out of your, that's a week out of your schedule, right? Right off the top, right? And that generally was because pre-COVID anyway, Mm -hmm. when we were all traveling, most depositions didn't take place where the adjuster sat. They took place where the litigation was pending most of the time, right? So adjusters were having to travel. Generally, that's a day of travel to and a day of travel from. So you have two days out of their schedule just for travel most of the time. Then if you, you have a day of the deposition, right, that's a full day. And if you have to have prep, there's four days. And generally, you're not just going to do one full day of prep. You're going to spend a number of hours prepping that aggregately may equal three, four days. So minimum, you've got an adjuster out of communication and out of commission for a week. That's a long time. And that's why it's important to really make sure, I think from the outset, that the deposition is necessary to begin with because a lot of times they're not. So um, that's really important. And I can talk a lot about that because that was part of what I did. But, you know, people ask for depositions all the time, but it doesn't mean they're entitled to them, right? Right. So you kind of have to, I think, think about, is this deposition required or is it beneficial? And if it is, then, you know, we've got a process. But if it's not, I think, you know, you've got to think about whether or not that's something you need you need to voluntarily move forward with on the front end. But, you know, timing, like you say, is so important on both sides because it takes so much time. Yeah. And, and another huge time consuming pro- pro- part of the process is the documents though, too. I mean, well, one, the attorney needs to be prepared with the documents and have the lay of the land ahead of time and have a plan um, before you step into that prep. But the knowing the ins and outs of the documents by the attorney first, I think makes the process more efficient. But going with that, I find also when I start prepping as much as I know those documents, once I get with that witness, things change and you like more questions pop up and you might learn about other documents, which has happened a lot. It's like, oh, wait, wait, there was that other thing in that warehouse over there. You're like, okay. You know, so that's why it's important to have every yourself prepared because there's always going to be something that's going to pop up that might, you know, change course a little bit. And this is also why you don't start preparing the day before. Exactly. And it it is, it's, it is very important. I mean, you know, the documents can be, you know, minimal or they can be voluminous depending on what the issues in your particular piece of litigation are. So, I think it's really important that you think that through as counsel, right, as outside counsel, how many documents are important to this case or are going to be important to this witness deposition, um, organizing them and determining how am I going to get these documents to this corporate witness, right? Do they already have access to them? Do they have them? How am I going to get them to them? And then making sure they have enough time to set aside to review them before you really sit down and do an in-depth prep, right? And then that way, when you're in the room with them or whatever you're doing to to have that prep, you have the familiarity with the documents, they have familiarity, and then you can discuss them, right? You can talk about them. I mean, I can tell you, you know, the worst thing that I see happen is, you know, we we schedule a, a prep session, we walk into a room, so it's me, it's a witness, it's outside counsel, and maybe somebody else with with the attorney and you know there's a box of documents that nobody's looked at and that aren't really organized and the attorney's trying to go through and figure them out as we're trying to prep you know that's really a waste of everybody's time quite frankly and it's frustrating it's frustrating for the witness and it's frustrating for everybody in the room because there's no organization there's no plan and there's a lot of waste of time and so those those are the situations that I've experienced where you know, it, it just doesn't go very well, right? And then we end up having to either break and come back and do it again, 
or we have dinner in there have been a number of times we've had push depots because we just haven't had that opportunity to get the witness properly prepared you know and and then you you're you know you're juggling a lot of people's schedules and then it becomes difficult and you don't want to be that guy right you're constantly pushing everything down the road and for you sitting in the in in that situation the carrier shoes you must be having a lot of doubt about your counsel as well like like what, yeah. <laughs> you are paying counsel a good sum of money to do their job <laughs> well yeah i you know and that, that you know that's that's a, a overarching theme with a lot of things. I mean, you you think about this as outside counsel and every interaction you have with your client is going to determine whether or not you have future interactions with your clients, you know, whether or not they allow it because, you know, as in-house counsel responsible for attorneys who prepped witnesses, particularly in extra contractual cases, you know, if, if there are situations in which, and there, there were, where I felt like we had counsel who just wasn't devoting the time and attention that we needed, then it's less likely that that attorney is going to get assignments in the future, quite frankly, right? So don't be that, don't be that attorney, you know, make sure that, it, you know, it's your client and your client's business and it's their bottom line and their money and their relationships that, you know, that you're, you're handling, Right. And you're doing it on their behalf. So you're an arm of them at that point. So don't forget that. That's important. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, I think um, I think there is also an importance of it's going a little off. But like when you have the attorney who is handling your, your file, also kind of teaching younger attorneys learning up from with them the process that they go through. So they are learning from an experienced attorney, like this is how you prep a client. Cause I think some people don't have that experience and you kind of, and you kind of learn on the fly, um, which, you know, could work, but I think it's always beneficial to, you know, someone who's much more experienced to groom, you know, younger attorneys as, okay, this is how, this is how you prep for, you know, a big deposition like this. Right. I, say, I think from a firm perspective, that's really important for continuity and longevity with your clients, right? If you think about that, because, you know, again, you know, most like insurance carriers have relationships with specific attorneys and, and that's who they assign cases to. But we all know that, you know, as a partner at a law firm, you also have associates, right? Um, or senior or junior, however you have your firm structured, who work with you, who help you, right? Put these cases together. You may be the face and you may be, you know, the, the key contact, but, you know, you have others helping you. And if the goal is for you and the firm to be able to continue that business, grow the business long term, then you're going to want to include your associates in these processes so they see how it should be done, right? The right way to do it. They can learn from you. They can participate in that way when your client needs help and needs work at some point you know, your associates and the other people in your firm have started to develop these relationships and they've learned the key skills and they've learned the right way to do things, then you you are able to have that relationship grow, right? I think that's really important. I think that's a good point. And it's really important today because so many attorneys don't have the litigation experience, right? They may sit back, but they, you know, not tried cases or they don't understand, you know, what the full process looks like. And so I think that's really important to, to include them and then, you know, to utilize that for your client as well. Yeah. But also to piggyback on that and piggyback on something you had said earlier, include them, but don't completely turn over the whole prep to right. a more junior, you know, a junior partner or associate without speaking to the client. Now, of course the client might feel totally comfortable with, you know, this associate or junior partner handling it. Um, but I, the discussion needs to happen first. I can imagine there, you've probably had a few, you know, grunts and angry faces when you, you hear that, like, you know, so-and-so, oh, well, you know, our client contact, our con attorney contact couldn't be there because whatever reason. So, you know, Joe stepped in. <laughs> yeah. Th those are, those lead to bad outcomes. They really do. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, we've, I even had an instance once where I had, uh, uh, one of our people call when they were driving on their way to give a deposition that I didn't know anything about, right? 
those are not the phone calls you want to get, right? Not from your in-house people and not from your outside people. You know, those, those lead to sometimes tough conversations because, you know, the process has been just totally skipped somewhere along the way. So, you know, you want to make sure that, you know, you've got the right people and you know who those people are internally that you need to make sure you communicate with about these things so that it all stays, you know, where it's supposed to be. And it's also about trust too. I mean, like if you're, you're trusting, you've, you've hired, you know, this attorney to work on your file and you trust them and you might not necessarily know this other, other attorney and they might be wonderful, but you haven't had, you haven't grown to trust them. So you not, you might not want them to handle this particular issue without, you know, oversight or whatever it may be. Um, you know, I'm all about, you know, introducing, you know, other people to clients to get them to get to know them and trust them, but you can't just like pull the rug out and be like, here they are, they're going to handle it. <laughs> trust right. me. It, you know, there, there are key times usually when, when the client's going to want that partner, that name, that relationship individual to be handling the issues, right? Hearings in court, obviously trial, um, depositions of the corporate witness are, are a lot of times one of those. Yes. I mean, just presenting the witness can be, I mean, prepping them is one thing, but presenting them can be important too. You, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons why your client may want you, you know, the named partner in the room for presentation and not maybe an associate because they're, you know, they just feel more comfortable with that. But again, like you say, you've got to communicate, you've got to talk to your client, you've got to make sure you understand what they're comfortable with and, and what their approach is, and then make sure that you're able to implement that. Yeah. And I mean, also, I, I think, you know, there's relation, not only relationships with clients, but relationships with other attorneys. And, you know, sometimes, you know, that, that counsel might have a long standing or know the opposing counsel well, that they're able to navigate that deposition in a different way than someone who doesn't have that experience with them. And, I mean, it's just part of the process, you know, knowing how certain people tick and know, like it, anticipating what's going to come at you so you know you know how to respond and that again that, that's the good communication between counsel and the client right is is understanding the dynamics right involved because like you say megan you know a lot of times you know the, the attorneys you run up against the same attorneys often on the other side uh or on the same side sometimes and you you have a relationship with them you have a rapport with them maybe you're friends with them right um, so there are, there are certain um, expectations about what that might look like versus maybe someone else that you've never uh, come up against before or worked with before, or maybe you, know, you have and you understand and from your experience, they are more difficult to work with. I mean, we all know that. I mean, I, I have lots of experience with attorneys on the other side of the V out there who are incredibly difficult. And they, they make it difficult on purpose, right? For various reasons. So, you know, those dynamics are really important when it comes to deposition because, you know, that's all taking place around your witness, right? Who is usually not involved in those dynamics, but it impacts them. So that's really important to think about. Yeah. Um, so we're just about out of time, but, and I, I think we could probably talk about, you know, this forever. We haven't even talked about this like paper discovery. I, so, I, I, <laughs> although there was one thing I actually wanted to mention before, before we close, when we were talking about reviewing documents um, a little bit ago, one thing that stood out in my mind is a mistake I think I've, I made early on in my career that I learned from is never think about any part of a document as some like skim over, like, that's not going to be important because that one piece of thing that you just bypass is going to be an issue without fail. <laughs> and it might seem belaboring to have to go through things so intently, but it, it happened. It just, it's just how it works. If you skim over it or brush it over or think it's not going to be, it going to be an issue. It is going to be key. <laughs> That's true because I, I, there, I, and I can tell you from experience uh, my responsibility was also to oversee, you know, written discovery. And I had to review every document that was being produced before it could go out the door. I mean, literally every page. And 
you know, when that didn't happen, there were times where we had to go back and, you know, try to claw back documents because documents had gone out the door that shouldn't have, either for privilege, uh, which should be really caught, um, but sometimes in an insurance context, the dynamics of whose privilege belongs to who and where that comes up can be something you have to really think about. But more often than not, it was because of, you know, confidential or proprietary information that had been produced by counsel who didn't understand the nature of that information when they read through it. So I'd say it's really important when you're talking about discovery to make sure that you know who internally is going to review that or approve that and what that process is like. And then the worst thing you can do ever is send it to somebody the night before it's due. I mean, literally, I had that happen repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. And it took a number of times in years and, and different councils sometimes, changing counsel, to be able to work that through because, you know, again, some cases are, are document intensive where you make thousands of pages. And if somebody really needs to look at that, they need the time to be able to do that and then comment back to you on what their findings are, if they have any questions or any concerns before they're due. And so my mantra really became at the end of the day, if you send it to me less than a week before it's due, you need to automatically have an extension already set in place. Because if you send it to me and tell me I've got a day or two to review it, my, my response will simply be, go get an extension, it's not happening. Because this is not the only file, it's not the only case. I have hundreds, if not thousands of matters pending at any one time. You know, so you're being sensitive to your client's needs and understanding processes is so important in all of this, depositions and discovery. And I, I think you could just like pulled this podcast full circle because I, I think that's the like a key key point that we you know we talked about at the beginning is you know r- respecting your your clients and knowing like they have hundreds of other files you know and right. yours is not the most important it might feel the most important to you at that moment when you're sending it off but it is not there are a million other fires that that a client has to look at, a million other documents, a million other emails. So yours is not the most important. You might think it is, but it's not. So you need to respect their time and communicate again. Like, you know, and a lot of it's picking up the phone and being like, hey, like I have this discovery. I'm going to send it out to you. You know, it's due on paper, you know, in three days, but I've spoke to counsel, like, they're giving us, you know, unofficial, whatever the conversation may be. But a lot of times it's, I think it's also picking up the phone and having that discussion and saying, I don't want to catch you off guard. This, this is where we, we are with this. And so I don't want to set off alarms with you. No, no. I, I mean, setting expectations is so important and the communication is key and you can accomplish a lot by just communicating well with people you know, whether or not it's what your needs are, you know, what you're running up against, you know, sometimes, you know, things are out of your control, even as counsel, right? Sometimes courts set deadlines and do things that either are unexpected or uncontrollable from that perspective. And so then you have to set those expectations with your client, which means you have to communicate with your client and let your client know what's happening, why it's happening, and then how you can navigate that process, right? To complete whatever that task is. And then that way your client has that perspective. But again, it requires communication in order to accomplish those things. Yeah. So I think in some bit, the, the theme to this is communication, preparation, and respect. <laughs> if I were to Absolutely. sum up this discussion in any other way. <laughs> Absolutely. And it, work, and it works both ways, right? And, and the one thing that I would say to, to counsel outside as well, just from an in-house perspective, is that if you're not getting what you need from your in-house contact, find somebody else, Mm -hmm. find somebody else. Don't let things fall apart because you're not getting what you think you need from your contact. You should know other people, find somebody else to talk to. Yeah, that is, I think like a kiss of death, like, oh, well, they're not responding. I'm just gonna sit on my hands. It's not on me now. (laughs) And and from my perspective, that's dumb because 
it is going to be on you, the attorney, if you are just saying, oh, well, you know, they didn't respond, so I didn't do anything. Well, no, <laughs> you, you know, the discovery's taken away. You still have to do something. So, <laughs> Right. And, and there could be any number of reasons why that happens. But, you know, a supervisor, a manager, somebody up the chain is going to be able to get things on track where they need to be if you reach out to them because that's what they want to do. I mean, look, these guys are all busy all trying to do the right thing at the end of the day. I mean, you really are trying to do the right thing for their policyholders, for their constituents. So, yeah. you know, just take some time and communicate. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on and, you know, chatting, chatting with me. I think we could probably go on for another 45 minutes, sure. but I, I don't want my editor to yell at me. <laughs> you know, he sure. doesn't yell at me, but uh, I, I truly appreciate the time you took out of your, your day to, you know, sit down and talk to, talk to me or talk to us about, you know, corporate depositions and just your, your career path. I, it was super interesting. No, thanks, Megan. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. Uh, so let our, our listeners know where they could find you should they, you know, need to engage you for any of your services. Sure. Not a problem. Um, if you want to reach out to me uh, by phone, uh, you can call me on my phone and my number is uh, 281-414-4256. Uh, I'll have another line shortly and then I'll have that available. But in the meantime, that's the direct line. And then you can reach me by email at wade, W-A-D-E dot Vandiver, V-A-N-D-I-V-E-R at A-T-T dot net. So either one of those is fine to reach out if you need anything and uh, looking forward to working with you. Well, awesome. And for, again, for all my, our listeners and viewers, you know, if you like what you hear, please like and subscribe to the Defense Never Rests on Apple Podcasts. And also you can find us on YouTube at The Legal Navigator. Mm-hmm.